the DZZ, we're turning it in our Bibles to the last chapter of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And so we've been working our way over the past few months through the letter, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians and thinking about what he has to say to the believers there. And obviously there was a lot of problems at Corinth. There was problems about division, there was problems about infighting. And one of the themes that Paul has to continue to return to again and again is the theme of love, that the believers should be united in love for one another. And ultimately that leads him to his famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13, where he talks about the characteristics of love. Love is patient, love is kind, and so on. And very often that gets used at weddings to describe the beauty of romantic love. But if we were to think about it in terms of romantic love, it's actually to take it well out of its original context. Because when Paul is talking about love there, he's talking about the concrete reality of how we've got to live towards our brothers and sisters in Christ in the local church. And so he follows that up immediately with chapter 14, where he talks about the practicalities of congregational worship. And that is to be characterized by love. When it gets to chapter 15, it might seem that He's taking a bit of a digression because he comes to talk about the resurrection and you think, well, how is that related to love? But ultimately, when he comes to the end of chapter 15, his point is that everything that we do as Christians is only significant if the resurrection is actually true. So self-sacrificial love is only going to make sense in light of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And only if we too are assured of our resurrection does it make sense to spend our lives in self-sacrificial love. And now as he comes to the close of 1 Corinthians in chapter 16, that theme of love is again very prominent in Paul's thinking. And he wraps up by thinking about love in three particular areas. First of all, he's going to think about love in relation to caring for poor and needy believers. And he's going to think about love in relation to care and love for those in Christian service or Christian ministry. And finally, as he wraps up um, in verse 22, he's going to think about how love for the Lord Jesus is the ultimate feature of Christian experience. Uh, But before we look at each of those things, uh, let's read the text together and hear what the Lord has to say to us through his apostle. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 1, Now about the collection for the saints, that is the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while, or even spend the winter, so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now, and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one, then, should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace, so that he may return to me. I am expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity." 
Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints, the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labours at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus and Achaicus arrived, because they have supplied what was lacking from you, for they refreshed my spirit and yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, as does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. And this, then, is the conclusion of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. And as he concludes, as we see, he's reminding the Corinthians about the importance of love, not an airy-fairy kind of sentimentality, just feeling warm towards other people, but love that's really expressed in concrete actions. And that's why he says in verse 14 that we are to do everything in love. And so in the first four verses, verses 1 to 4, what Paul expresses is the need for us to express our love in terms of actually caring for the needs of the poor and needy. And so in verses 1 to 4, he talks about the needs of uh, the saints in Jerusalem. Now, if you remember back to Romans chapter 15, uh, in chapter 15 of Romans, Paul there explains about the, the importance of making this collection for the saints in Jerusalem. The saints in Jerusalem had experienced a lot of hardship and a lot of poverty. And we read there that that Paul is gathering a collection for the saints to take to those in Jerusalem. We know that there's various reasons that may have caused that. In AD 46, for example, we know that there's a severe famine in Judea that lasted for several years. So there's a lot of poverty because of that. But it could also be because of ostracism, because of their Jewish relatives, that many of these Jewish believers find themselves in very difficult circumstances and needing support. But... As much as Paul is interested in us just caring for the poor and needed, there's, there's a real theological significance behind what Paul argues for here. And he fleshes this out a bit more in Romans chapter 15. Because the idea of Gentiles, such as you've got in Corinth, actually helping the Jewish believers in Jerusalem was really very significant. Because it demonstrated in a very tangible way the fact that Gentile believers were caring for Jewish believers. And that in the church, this new body of Christ that God had created, the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles had been broken down. And there was this union, there was this care for believers that were together, one in the body of Christ. And more than that, it was symbolic that the new age had actually dawned. Because as, as Paul read the book of Isaiah, for example, he's reading about what are going to be the characteristics of the new age that the, the Messiah is going to bring about. And he sees in passages like Isaiah chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 60 that one of the features is the Gentiles are going to bring their wealth to Jerusalem. Uh, Isaiah chapter 60 verse 11, we read that people will bring you, that is God's people in Jerusalem, the wealth of the nations. And whether or not this is exhausted in what we see in, in situations like this here, the point is that Paul sees an initial fulfillment happening here where Gentile believers are bringing their wealth 
to the believers at Jerusalem and saying that we are one in Christ Jesus. And for Paul, this is a sign that the new age of salvation through the Messiah has dawned. God is bringing about something new. And so to facilitate this care for the saints in Jerusalem, he's been going around, Paul has been going around telling various different churches to take collection so that they can deliver this tangible evidence of care to Jerusalem. And Paul then says that on the first day of the week, they're to set aside a sum of money in keeping with their income, saving it up so that when he comes, collections don't have to be made. And so week after week, the believers would come, they would deposit some money that they'd saved up, and then eventually when Paul arrives, he's not going to have to try and drum up support. He's actually going to be able to say, okay, this is the sum of money that can then be sent to the saints at Jerusalem to provide for them. So is Paul then laying down a universal kind of law that must be followed by all churches everywhere? Well, I think he's obviously speaking about very specific circumstances, the needs of the saints at Jerusalem. So it would be unwise to say that this is a universal law. Nevertheless, there's some very wise thinking going on here on behalf of Paul. And it's helpful for us to think, well, if Paul is making these recommendations, why is he making these recommendations? And what significance might they have for us as well? And so he says, first of all, that um, he, he wants them to give on the first day of the week. And we ask ourselves the question, well, why is he saying that they ought to gather their money on the first day of the week? Well, it's because that's the day in which the believers would have gathered together to worship. It was the Lord's day. And so they come together on the Lord's day and they make their deposit into the collection so that eventually when Paul comes, there'll be money that can be taken to Jerusalem. But the reason why he's suggesting this is because I think that he wants them to think about the significance of what they're doing as they're giving on the Lord's Day. Because as they're coming along, they're not thinking to themselves, oh, this is just us. We're just this unique little solitary body of believers. They're reminded that as they're giving on the Lord's Day, they are part of a broader global body of believers and they have responsibilities not only towards their local assembly but also to the believers scattered across the world and so that sense of connection that Paul wants these Corinthians to feel is fostered when they actually bring their money on the first day of the week and say tangibly this is in recognition of how we're connected to other believers and so in a similar way I think it's actually important for us to then give on the first day of the week. Because as we do that, we're reminding ourselves of how we are connected to other believers in other parts of the world who are in need. And we're saying tangibly that we're not solitary Christians just here, that we're actually connected to other believers. Another thing to note about Paul's instruction is that he doesn't say how much people ought to give. He doesn't say give a tenth or give a tithe. Paul, you know, he's, he's well-versed in the Jewish scriptures, and if he wanted to, he quite easily have said, well, Jewish law transfers over to you Gentiles, therefore you ought to give a tenth of all your income on the first day of the week. And he doesn't say that. He's quite explicit in the point that, um, that he wants people to give in accordance with their income. As the Lord has prospered them, they are to give. And that then means that if they've done particularly well one week, they're to give more. And if they've been really struggling, then they're only to give what they are able to give and so Paul is really quite clear that we are to give in line with as we are able to give. His point isn't to try and make the poor poorer, as you get in some congregations. His point is simply that we should give as we are able. 
And that leads then to another point, that what Paul is really driving at here is not just trying to get the biggest sum of money that you can possibly get. Paul is really more concerned, I think, about the significance of every believer contributing, just as he's concerned about the significance of the Gentile believers giving money to the Jewish believers. So he's, I think he's concerned on the first day of the week. So I think he's also concerned about every believer contributing whatever they are able to give. And he's not interested in how much they're able to give. He's just interested in them actually doing it. He could have quite easily have said, you rich believers at Corinth, you know that you've got a real responsibility to give to the poor believers in Judea. But he doesn't say that. He, he specifically states that every one of us are to give as we are able to give. And why is he interested in that? Because he wants every member of the congregation to feel that sense of connection to other believers and other parts of the world, to, to feel that sense that we are one, that we are sharing and caring for other believers' needs. And having then instructed them on how to collect this offering for the poor believers in Jerusalem, he explains that he's going to give letters of introduction to some believers from Corinth as they then take that gift to Jerusalem. And he says that he'll go along too if he feels it's appropriate. I think his reasoning is quite clear. He's very interested in the symbolism of this. And one of the reasons why he's probably cautious about going is because he doesn't want it to look like he's been just trying to force everybody to give money. And it's some kind of compelled offering that's been sent to Jerusalem just because he's a fellow Jew. He wants it to be seen as a voluntary offering on behalf of the Gentiles being taken to Jerusalem. And so he wants the saints to Jerusalem to receive this gift and to think, this is wonderful. Look at what God has done in this, this new creation reality in the church, the body of Christ, where these Gentiles across the world have become aware of our needs and have met those needs generously, despite their own circumstances providing for us. And so I think that's why Paul is wanting to distance himself somewhat from this gift. He's encouraging it because it's so important, but he doesn't want it to look like it's something that he's been drumming up. Now, when we think about these verses and how they're relevant to us, obviously I've made a few points about how they might be significant to us. But let me come back to it again and think about concretely, how do we put this into practice? Well, I think what Paul is driving at is that we're to express our love for other believers in tangible ways, in material ways. So we've got to put our money where our mouth is. It's one thing to gather on Thursday evenings, for example, and pray for saints in other parts of the world that are suffering. It's another thing to say, right, well, here's a need. How are we going to actually meet that need? And to think, right, well, let's gather together as a group of believers and say, let's take a collection and send it to these saints who are in need. And that actually strikes at another point as well, because it's, it's good for believers to give individually and to give privately, as indeed many of us do. There's organizations, Christian organizations and other organizations that actually care for other believers in other parts of the world, the poor and the needy. And we can give privately to those. That's a good thing. But it's also a good thing to give corporately as a body of believers. Because when we do that, again, it's a symbolic recognition that we're not just isolated atoms just floating about. That we're actually one body globally and individual congregations are, are the body of Christ too and that we emphasize our connectedness by actually saying right here at Benjamin we're going to give to the needs of these believers in Bangladesh or in Ukraine or whatever other part of the world that actually needs our help. So then it's really important for us to think about how 
uh, we can express that love for others tangibly. And on Lord's Day morning, that's obviously what we try to do at Bencham in, in taking collections so that when needs arise, we can actually meet needs uh, that we've become aware of. Paul then, um, he moves on to discuss a variety of different examples in the following verses. Verses 5 uh, right through uh, to, to round about verse 20, he talks about various different ways of expressing love to different people that they're involved in. Because they've got to express their love in caring for those who need support. And he begins with them first, himself first in verses 5 through to 9. How can they express their love towards Paul? Well, he explains that he wants to come and visit them and spend some time with them. He says that he doesn't merely want to pass through just in a fleeting visit. He actually wants to spend some quality time with them. And he says in verse 6 that this is because he wants them to help him on his journey. In other words, Paul needs help. And the way that they can express their love for Paul is by helping him. Now, at this point, when they receive the letter, they, they're going to think about, well, how can we help Paul? When he comes to them, he may need material support, but he will need spiritual support. Uh, Paul isn't, even though he's an apostle, he's not averse to receiving spiritual blessing from others. And uh, you see that at the start of Romans, where he talks about how he, he wants to, to give and receive spiritual benefits when he comes to the saints of Rome. And it's the same here at Corinth. He's going to need that kind of encouragement. And as if to highlight how much he needs their encouragement and support, he says in verse 9 that in his current situation, he's experiencing much opposition in Ephesus. He's saying that, yes, there's been a door that's been opened to him for effective work. And so obviously he's got great opportunities there. But he says that there's much opposition to him there. And so he's going to continue on Ephesus to continue that work as long as the Lord enables him to do so. So how can they help him? Well, they can encourage him by actually heeding his message. He's got much that's opposing him in Ephesus. But if he hears that they are full of love to the Lord Jesus and love for one another and obedient to these instructions that he's given, then that's going to be an encouragement to him. And it's going to take off the pressure that he's experiencing in Ephesus. So this is one way in which they can express their love to Paul. Then in verses 10 to 11, he explains that not only can they show their love to him, but they can show their love towards Timothy. Timothy, you see, was one of Paul's co-workers, and he was due to come and visit the saints at Corinth. And I've got an inkling that Timothy's a little bit, little bit fearful at times. I think he's probably of a slightly nervous disposition. And the reason why I think that is because in 1 Timothy, you discover that Timothy has frequent stomach complaints, and that wouldn't be unusual for somebody that's dealing with a lot of stress in their life. And then in 2 Timothy, Paul writes quite clearly to Timothy that God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. And then when you read these verses in 1 Corinthians, again, you wonder if Timothy doesn't struggle with fear and stress precisely because of the difficult situations that he often has to deal with. And so Paul writes to them, when Timothy comes, see to it that he has got nothing to fear while he is with you. And wouldn't it be an awful thing he's saying to the Corinthians that if Timothy showed up, he had to deal with the stress and mess of a divided church. So how can they show love to Timothy? Well, they can show love by actually 
being united and encouraging Timothy when he comes so that Timothy can rejoice in seeing their spiritual growth and maturity. In verse 12 then, Paul urges them to show their love not only to Timothy but to Apollos. Now Apollos' name is one that has already come up in the letter. You remember at the start of the letter that the church at Corinth had divided into different factions where some of them were saying, oh, I am of Paul, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas. And they're dividing themselves up and saying, well, this is the person that I think has really got the good grasp and truth, and I'm going to follow after them. Now, clearly, Apollos had nothing to do with that, because if Apollos had anything to do with that, then he would be eager to get in amongst them and and receive the, the praise that people were wanting to give to him. But we read in verse 12 that Paul, or that Apollos rather, was really quite unwilling, reluctant to come and visit them in that point. And one really does get the impression that Apollos' reluctance is because he doesn't want to feed the kind of sectarianism that they've got at Corinth. He doesn't want to be coming along, just adding fuel to the fire. And so again, Paul is, is trying to get them to think, well, what would be loving? What would be the way in which to lovingly respond to Apollos? Well, it would be to recognize that Apollos himself doesn't want division and factionalism. Apollos himself wants to see their unity. And so Paul has prevailed upon Apollos to eventually come and visit them in Corinth. And so he says to them that Apollos is going to come. But he wants them to see that Apollos' coming is not to come as some kind of you know, um, victory parade where he's going to rally the troops. No, he's coming with reluctance. And what's going to encourage, is, encourage him is if he sees their unity in Christ. Then in verses 13 and 14, you get a kind of hinge where Paul goes, he summarizes what he's saying, and then he goes in the following verses to talk about other believers that had come from Corinth. And he's talking about those local Corinthian believers and talking about how they can express their love for them. Um, But at this hinge then, verses 13 and 14, he tells them that they really need to be on their guard. They need to be watchful. And this is what he's emphasized in the previous chapters of 1 Corinthians, because they need to realize that there's an enemy on their track who's going to try and destroy their unity and their testimony to Christ, and he's going to try and divide them up, and he's going to try and strip them of truth. And it's in light of all of those things, then, that Paul goes on and he says that they are to stand firm in the faith. They need to hold on to these truths that that Paul has taught them when he was with them in Corinth. And in holding on to it, he says that they are to be courageous. They are to act like men. And the idea is just that that of courage there. And they are to be strong. And when he says that they are to be strong, he qualifies that very quickly and says that actually the way they are to be strong is to act in love. Because in Corinth, obviously, we've seen that there was this division between those who called themselves the strong and those who called them, uh, those who, who were the strong then called others the weak believers. Those who were the strong realized that, well, they could do all of these things. They could eat certain things. They could go to certain places. They could do certain things because of their Christian liberty. And Paul says to them, in essence, in these verses, well, that's good. It's good to be strong. How do you show your strength? Do everything in love. The strength of believers, their maturity, is to be demonstrated not by trampling on the consciences of other believers, but actually showing care and consideration to them, such as the Lord Jesus had shown. And so that's the kind of hinge of the chapter. And following that hinge, he gives other examples of how they ought to love others. 
He, he mentions in verse 17, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Nicaeus who come to visit him where he is in Ephesus. And he says that they have made up what was lacking. In other words, they have really made up for the absence of the Corinthians. Just seeing Stephanus and Fortunatus and Nicaeus is such an encouragement to Paul that it, it fills him with joy. And he urges the Corinthians then to, to submit to such people, to show honor and respect to such people, precisely because they really go out of their way to serve the Lord and his people. And in verses 19 and 20, he reminds them again that they are part of this bigger body of believers. Aquila and Priscilla, they had once been with the Corinthians, according to Acts 18, and they had subsequently moved to Ephesus, and they send greetings back. It's reminding them, you're part of this bigger body of believers. And he says, too, that the churches of Asia, they send their greetings, too. And then to reinforce what he's been saying about love, he concludes in verse 20 by saying, greet one another with a holy kiss. And this was a symbol of affection that was practiced by the early Christians as a way of showing their, their commitment to one another. Um, and it was not just something that was just practiced in a few churches. Um, it's uh, talked about in other early Christian documents, so it's obviously quite a significant thing. Now, obviously, here in the UK, we're a bit too staid and formal for giving people holy kisses, so I'm not trying to revive the practice or anything like that. But it's worth reflecting on how do we actually demonstrate tangibly that we love one another, so that when we come together, um, we actually show that we do love and care for one another. Uh, Imagine what it's like at Corinth, where they're at each other's throats. If they're having to go to a brother that they've struggled, or a sister that they've struggled to actually come to terms with, and they greet them with that holy kiss, it becomes a tangible way of breaking down those barriers of division. And Paul's trying to bring that about. So when we think about these verses 5 to 20 and how they actually apply to us today, like many of the conclusions of Paul's letters, it can be difficult at times to see, well, how does this actually connect to us? It's, it's like reading somebody else's letters. And in, very, in, in a way, that's actually what we're doing when we're reading this letter to, to the Corinthians. And much of it is specific, people that the Corinthians knew, people that Paul knew in advance that were going on then. But the broader point that Paul's making is that we ought to exist in a relationship of love with our other local brothers and sisters and with our global brothers and sisters as well. Moreover, we ought to recognize that those that work hard in the local church. It's interesting that the people that Paul calls out as being significant that they ought to submit to aren't necessarily great teachers or preachers or public figures. Paul commends them precisely because they'd brought spiritual encouragement to him. They'd left Corinth and gone to Ephesus, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. And that spiritual encouragement and refreshment was the thing that Paul appreciated. And Paul's saying, submit to such people. They work hard for you. And so we ought in a local congregation to recognize, recognize those that work hard for us spiritually. Not necessarily in a public sphere but those who do work hard for us, and we ought to encourage them. But not only ought we to show that honour at the local level, but also at the bigger body of believers. Um, they're called upon to show love for people like Timothy, um, Apollos. They're to receive greetings from the saints in Asia. And again and again, they're reminded of the fact that we are part of that bigger body of believers. And here at Bencham, obviously, we believe in local church governance. We don't believe that there's a structure of church authority that's higher than the local church level. That doesn't mean that we think that we are the people 
and that we alone are this like a solitary congregation that does our own spiritual journey. We recognize that we're connected to other local, other congregations across the world and that we are part of that global body of Christ. I'm not trying to say that that's a denominational thing. It doesn't matter whether there's a gospel hall above the door or not. What matters is that we're part of that global body of believers that Paul is saying you've got to recognize that unity. Not to make it happen, but it already is true. And so Paul's point is that we ought to mark those relationships with love. Finally then, um, Paul concludes in verse 22 by highlighting that it's not only love for other believers that's necessary, that they ought to demonstrate in their church life, but the most fundamental aspect of Christian experience is love for the Lord Jesus. And so Paul writes, if anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. The word he uses is anathema. The King James doesn't translate it because for a long time it was Christian lingo. Most people don't really understand it now. The idea is it's just God's curse rests upon that person. Stern words. Why does Paul wind up his letter by calling down God's curse on anybody that doesn't love the Lord Jesus? I think it's because he wants the Corinthians to realize how serious their problems actually are. If there are people at Corinth that are trying to tear down Christ's church through division and factionalism, then they're trying to destroy what the Lord Jesus has made. They're trying to break down the church for which Christ died. And Paul is saying, if you do that, then how, how can you love the Lord Jesus? And he's saying, if anyone doesn't then love the Lord Jesus, let God's curse rest upon that person. This love then for the Lord Jesus works itself out as a love for the Lord's people. Uh, we want to be with the Lord's people and to care for and nurture the Lord's people. But Paul goes on then to explain that not only is it about love for the Lord's people that, it ex that is expressed, but it's also a love for the Lord Jesus' return. And so those who love the Lord Jesus want to be with the Lord Jesus. They want to see the Lord Jesus. And he calls out in an Aramaic word, Maranatha. And again, we see it in many other early Christian documents, which emphasizes that the early Christian community regularly used this as an expression of their hope. Uh, from the earliest days, the Christian community would have cried out, Maranatha, come Lord, because they're longing for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we've seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that that, that awareness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ produced an awareness that we too are going to be resurrected as well. And that the Christian hope is one that's firmly future-oriented. It's a hope that rests in the fact that the Lord Jesus will raise us from the dead and that the Lord Jesus will return. And so in the meantime, as we wait, Paul prays that we would know the Lord's grace and he prays for the Lord's grace to be upon them. That's the divine power that we need to sustain us as we go through life waiting for the Lord. And as they wait, he says that they can be assured of Paul's love for them, as he demonstrates as an example of what it means to love other brothers and sisters. And as we conclude by thinking about how these verses apply to us, they pose a real challenge to us. Do we love the Lord Jesus? Are we driven by the Lord Jesus? Is that what drives us to care for other brothers and sisters? Does the love for the Lord Jesus drive a longing for the return of the Lord Jesus. And so wrapped up with Christian experiences, love for the Lord Jesus, that Paul can say that anybody who doesn't love the Lord Jesus is under God's curse. So it's the mark of Christian experience that we love the Lord Jesus, 
And as he's already explained in the previous verses, this isn't just an airy-fairy feeling. It's worked out tangibly in caring for other brothers and sisters because we are part of the body of Christ. So it's not just internal feelings, but it would be wrong to say that it's not internal feelings because this love for the Lord's coming, this longing for the Lord's return, is something which is driven by love for the Lord Jesus. And when we love the Lord Jesus deeply, we can't wait for that day when we are going to actually see him and experience the joy of being with him. And that's what drives the Christian experience. When we get to 2 Corinthians next week, we're going to discover that the Corinthians, they heeded some of his concerns, and he praises them for that. But there's many other areas of concern that actually remain so that he has to deal with. But as we have heard this letter written to us in the first century, and as we reflect on its message to us, then we've got to do some soul searching and think about how have things changed between the first century and the 21st century? Are we driven by factionalism and enmity towards one another? Or do we demonstrate the kind of love that Paul longs for? Love for Christ first and foremost, and love for his people that will give ourselves sacrificially to ensure that everyone grows and matures into the people that Christ wants us to be. Well, may God help us to actually heed this word and to grow into the people that will be to the praise of Christ's glory when he comes again. Let's bow and pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for this word that has been spoken to us and the exhortation that we've heard echoing down 